To stop the spread of coronavirus in Tokyo, Governor Koike Yuriko last month called on residents to practice social distancing by avoiding the three mitsus, meaning closed and crowded places with close contact. As cities and nations all over have adopted similar guidelines, some of the world's most vulnerable populations have been overlooked. Whether refugees, migrant laborers, or in some cases people jailed while waiting trial or for minor violations, these groups have little hope of practicing social distancing and are now highly susceptible to coronavirus in crowded camps, housing, and holding facilities. Coronavirus numbers have skyrocketed in the past few weeks, propelled by a surge in infections among its migrant workers. While residents of Tokyo avoid the three mitsus to prevent contracting the coronavirus, hundreds of refugees and asylum seekers remain locked up in close confines in the Tokyo Regional Immigration Bureau, with seemingly nowhere to go and no way to protect themselves. What is this detention center, and who is being detained there? How many people are being detained, and why are they there? What are conditions like inside the center, and what steps are officials taking to stop the spread of coronavirus inside? And finally, how does treatment of detainees illustrate the Japanese government's attitude towards refugees more generally? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on refugees detained in Tokyo, I talked with Dr. David Slater, professor of cultural anthropology in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Graduate School of Japanese Studies at Sofia University in Tokyo, as well as director of Refugee Voices Japan and advisor to the Sofia Refugee Support Group. Dr. Slater recently co-authored an article in the Japan Times entitled, If the Virus Gets In, It Will Spread Like Wildfire. I started by asking Dr. Slater to describe the detention centers and tell us more about the people detained there. The detention centers basically are places where foreigners who have violated their visa requirements will end up. Well, sometimes there are people who have overstayed their visa. In previous years, that has been more commonly the case. More recently, as the requirements and the expectations and the rules of the immigration service has gotten tighter and tighter, it could also include people who have failed to inform the Immigration Bureau of a change of address or something uh, as trivial as some kind of paperwork error. If they've made those kinds of violations, it's not a criminal violation. These are not criminals because of that. They wouldn't be sent to a regular penitentiary or actual jail. Instead, they would be sent to one of the detention centers around Tokyo and beyond. Within this larger population that ends up in the detention center, there is a large population who are refugee asylum seekers. These are people who have applied for refugee asylum in Japan, failed to get it, and upon their failure, they do have a possibility of appealing, and sometimes, uh, if they have the resources, to reapply, but uh, most of them don't have those kinds of resources. So they come here from all over the world, from persecution, from countries that are generating a lot of refugees. They come to Japan and they make the application for refugee asylum. They are rejected, and then they're in kind of a precarious situation. They already cannot go back to their home because they're being persecuted. That's why they came here in the first place. 
On the other hand, if they don't have enough resources, financial or lawyer resources, to mount an appeal or a reapplication, then they're no longer in the process of applying for asylum. Those are the people who we have been working with who are put into the detention center, and many of them are kind of wondering why they're there in the first place. The article quotes one of the detainees who is a refugee asylum seeker asking the brutally ironic question now, why am I here? How is it that I am ending up in something that looks pretty much like a prison when my only crime was that I applied for asylum, got rejected, and now I can't go back home to the country that is persecuting me? Shouldn't I have some other option rather than ending up in the detention center? And right now, the answer is no. It does force us a little bit to rethink our definition of refugee. Oftentimes, kind of the paradigmatic image of refugee might be a Syrian whose house is bombed, takes all of their belongings and walk across the border into a refugee camp in Turkey or Lebanon. The people who make it all the way to Japan are a different kind of refugee, a refugee oftentimes with somewhat more means, who are able to leave before they see the deterioration what is sometimes called general violence in the street, before things get so bad they're unable to protect themselves or their families. So this refugee is somebody who is coming to Japan because they imagine that Japan represents a safe haven. Unfortunately, what they find when they come to Japan is that the rate of recognition is less than 1%. So fewer than 1% of the people who apply for refugee status are given recognition. This puts Japan wildly out of sync with any of the EU countries, with any of the developed countries, and certainly as the third largest economy in the world, it's a puzzling statistic for most of the rest of the world. As you mentioned, Japan is only emitting less than 1% of the people who apply for refugee status. And it makes me wonder, you know, how many people are we talking about per year? And then do we have any good numbers or statistics on how many people are actually in these detention centers right now? Yeah, looking at the total number of refugee applicants, it seemed to hit a peak in 2017, where there was almost 20,000 applicants. 20,000 applicants, if you put that number within the EU, we are about the eighth largest. Um, so it's, it, it's a big number. It's not big like Germany or France or the US, but it's certainly bigger than, than many of the EU countries. But of the almost 20,000 who applied, 12,000 were processed and only 20 were granted refugee status. So that's not 20% or a multiple of 20. That's just 20 individuals. The following year, they made the process to apply more difficult, and uh, the number of applicants in 2018 went substantially down, almost by a third, and they did increase the number of acceptance to 48, I believe. This is still substantially below 1% and still puts Japan way out of, of line with any kind of, of trajectory of other similar nations who are playing leading role geopolitics of, of our world today. Within the detention center itself, this uh, Shinagawa detention center 
has about as many as 500 people can be housed, both men and women. It's about two-thirds men at this point, uh, we think. We don't really have good numbers either on exactly how many are in at any given time, uh, how long they are detained, or uh, what is the country of origin. Without these basic data that places like Amnesty International have been calling for for quite a while, it's very difficult to get a, a full picture of, of what is going on. What we do know from the different advocacy organizations is that the length of detention has been getting longer. So the people are being detained for a longer period of time, oftentimes with no idea of how long that will be. Some people who are in detention say, this is actually worse than jail, because in jail, at least you know that you will be in jail for 18 months or 20 years or whatever else it will be. In detention center, you're not given a set time for how long you will be there. So you don't know if you're getting out soon or not soon. So psychologically, it makes it very difficult to kind of prepare yourself for surviving your stay there. The other kind of psychological burden, in the words of one of the detainees, is that in some ways, this is like a jail that you can walk out of any time. So if you're willing to go back to your country and pay for your ticket, usually that's great. The immigration service want you to take that option. But if you're actually being persecuted in your home country, that's not an option. So one of the psychological kind of games that a lot of detainees report is the continual pressure by the guards and the immigration officers of you should go home. You would be better off if you left. You should leave now. And under this continual pressure of leaving, of encouragement to leave, it creates, again, unsteadiness within the population. Some people call it a kind of a psychological torture. That was a very powerful part of the article talking about, you know, these people haven't necessarily committed a crime and yet they're being treated as criminals being held in places that, as you mentioned, are you know, like jails or prisons. And so can you talk a little bit more about what are the conditions like in these centers as far as you've been able to tell and, and what is it like for the people who are being detained there? We have been going to the detention center for about two years with a student group called Sophia Refugee Support Group and visiting three or four, sometimes five times a week, the different detainees. So we have a pretty good idea of how life is inside. As part of the research project, we've also been interviewing detainees after they've been released, talking about the difficulties of being inside. At the kind of root level, it feels and looks and is organized very much like a regular prison. There are people behind locked and closed doors, unable to move about freely. They do have some free time that they can participate in kind of a limited shared space. They have about an hour a day where they can actually go on kind of an enclosed outdoor space. This is the Shinagawa Detention Center. But for most of the time, from about 4.30 in the afternoon until about 9 in the morning, they are in their rooms. The rooms are, are very small, and there's usually about eight people. Some of the rooms are smaller, four people, something like that. So if you are lying down or trying to find some place to sit, things are pretty crowded. You're basically living on top of each other. Being able to move about and preserve any kind of personal space is almost impossible, which is always a difficult situation. But in times of infection, 
when there's an outbreak such as corona, all of those inconveniences turn into risks that are acutely felt by the people who are inside and quite honestly end up being terrifying for all of the detainees and also it seems even for some of the guards. As we've seen around the world, you know, some of the most dangerous vectors for spreading the coronavirus are these jails. We've heard stories about Rikers Island in New York City or other types of cramped housing conditions like migrant labor housing in Singapore. These detention centers, too, you know, are at risk of spreading coronavirus to the, the people being detained there. Have the government officials there taken any steps to prevent the spread of coronavirus inside the centers? They have explained that they are making more of an effort to wipe down some of the surfaces. They do distribute masks about once a week. But for most of the people who are inside, they really don't notice much of anything at all. Having some of the surfaces wiped down would be some kind of solace to some people. But there's so many people using so much of the same spaces that it's almost impossible to keep this kind of space clean. Moreover, the ventilation in these spaces, especially the detention center in Shinagawa, has very poor ventilation, and many of the detainees talk about that. So you end up in a situation where they're unable to move, they're unable to keep clean the small spaces that they are forced to live in, and the air around them becomes kind of like a soup of everybody else's shared germs. We were talking before about these kind of comparisons to places like Rikers Island, and especially how with the coronavirus pandemic, these places of very close confines and cramped quarters are becoming hotspots for coronavirus. And in fact, officials in Rikers Island in New York were actually trying to get people out of jail, especially people who had were you know nonviolent offenders, or in some cases, people who hadn't even been found guilty of anything yet. And so in this case as well, we have people who, as you said, aren't criminals, they haven't broken a law. I mean, did it ever cross the mind of officials say, you know, it would be actually in the interests of welfare to let them out? It is amazing. No matter how careful you are in trying to create some sort of social distancing or hand washing and, and cleaning the surfaces, it's impossible to achieve that in an institutional context. There's no set of actions that you can take to make this safe. And the only option actually is, is a reasonable one is release. Um, because these people are actually not dangerous criminals, they've not broken any laws usually. Their biggest violation is they've come to Japan in order to seek asylum. It's not so hard to imagine that they would be released into the general population. Japan has been very slow in considering this option, although in the past week we have heard of releases of as many as 50 people from the detention center here in Shinagawa, or uh, 50 people up in the detention center up in Ibaraki. But 50 people in a population of almost 500 is not going to make a huge amount of, of difference. It's still a relatively precarious and overcrowded situation. That said, release is not always the easy answer either. These people, the longer they're in there, they've used up the little bit of money that they did have. Their social connections uh, have deteriorated while they are there. And so suddenly releasing them into the general population is oftentimes a very difficult situation for the released detainee, him or herself. 
this is the kind of, of situation that oftentimes they will end up with no place to stay, not enough money to feed themselves. The support structure for uh, refugee asylum seekers is not very developed in Japan. There's not much support the way there is in, in other kinds of countries. Uh, and uh, we've already talked to a couple of people who have been released and who are now homeless or on the brink of becoming homeless. Uh, and of course, becoming homeless is, brings with it a whole nother set of corona risk factors. The real problem is why are so many people being detained in the first place? Why, if they are asylum seekers, and then as opposed to real criminals, why should they be detained for such a long period of time, preventing them from making their case and gathering up the kinds of resources to mount an appeal or a reapplication? Maybe it's the underlying condition of the detainee system itself that is the problem. To make it even more complicated, what we see is Japan is one of the most generous nations in donating money to refugee support around the world. So, for example, they're almost always in the top two or three or four in their donations to the UNHCR or the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which is the part of the United Nations that oversees refugees around the world. Some critical voices say Japan, like many rich countries, are willing to pay to keep refugees far away from their shores. They're very generous abroad and yet accept almost nobody into the land of, of Japan itself. I don't think that would be an unfair characterization, and I only wish more of the, the refugees would have done this research to understand that here is quite possibly the worst place uh, many of them could have decided to come. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.